Amen. Well, we have a special guest with us today, somebody who has been a guest often enough that I think probably we should just start calling you friend, <laughs> who's going to tell us a little bit more about this Jesus who paid our debt. So would you welcome with me Ben Corson. Thanks, Drew. Love you, dude. Oh, I'm so glad to be back here. I feel like this is my second home. Um, this text that I was assigned today, I, when I saw the message, I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? Because this is one of the most anomalous scripture passages I've ever been assigned. And you guys are just booking it through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And then as I was studying this passage, I got super stoked. Like I got really excited. So uh, now I'm going to share this message back home tomorrow night as well in Oregon. So I'm really excited. This is going to be fun. Turn with me to the book of Luke, where you guys left off chapter 16. Uh, Now, recently I've been kind of touring around the country speaking about my book coming out, Optimisfits. And a lot of people ask me, what is an optimisfit? Well, it's a made-up word. My brother-in-law actually made it up. And an optimisfit is somebody who's an optimistic misfit. Somebody who lives with wild, reckless abandon, childlike wonder, and unapologetic optimism. Somebody who's like a nonconformist adventurer. And the reason I love this definition so much is because a lot of people ask me, Ben, have you ever had like a rebellious stage in your walk with God? Because I'm a pastor's kid and that's sort of the notorious reputation of PKs is that we go through a rebellious stage. I say, I've never really had a rebellious stage until now. I'm in my rebellious stage currently because the more I read the story of Jesus, the more I see that he was a rebel. He was a rebel, and that's something nobody talks about. And I think it's so fascinating, it's so engrossing, and so intriguing. I love what Drew said yesterday, that he's a, a, did you say a recovering legalist? I can definitely relate to you there. Um, I think in the ministry, it can be so easy to become conformist, and I love, Drew, how how you put that, because I relate to you. And Jesus had this amazing ability to go against religion, and teach relationship as a rebel if alliteration is your jam. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 14 as we are going to see, pardon me, chapter 16, verse 14, as we're going to see the dangers of religion and the merits of relationship as we live as optimistic misfits following in the footsteps of the rebel Jesus. Does that sound fun to you? Okay, let's go. Luke 16 verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Never a good idea to deride Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Then he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, in this text that I've been assigned to teach you today, I want to remind you that verse 14 tells us who this passage is spoken to. It was spoken to Pharisees. 
Now to us, Pharisees, when I conjure in my mind's eye a caricature of a Pharisee, I think of Jafar from Aladdin. I mean, these guys were the antagonists. It's almost like a cartoon. Jesus had his arch nemesis, his villain, and it was always the Pharisees. If you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con rather than a text. And you're left with a con rather than a pro, and it will be a con artist tricking you out of your knowledge. And so in the context of the narrative arc of the gospel stories, when Jesus was angry, he was invariably mad at Pharisees. He wasn't mad at tax collectors. Now remember, tax collectors were our modern day mobsters. They, they've effectively and essentially worked for the mob. In fact, it was even worse. To Jewish people, they were considered traitors because remember the Roman Empire had its boot on the Jewish neck. And so tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire were the enemies of the Israeli Israelis. So for example, when Matthew, this is actually super funny. When Matthew started following Jesus, it says he was a tax collector. And one of the followers of Jesus was a guy named Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots teamed up with the Sakari Dagger Bears. And the Sakari Dagger Bears would hide, uh, they would live in caves. I actually saw these caves in Israel a few weeks ago. But they had these daggers in their cloaks. They would hide in caves. They would go into public places, stab Roman citizens. And Roman sympathizers hide their dagger in their cloak and then disappear in the crowd. Because they hated Romans so much. They didn't just kill Roman citizens. They killed Roman sympathizers. So the zealots were passionate nationalists. So the fact that they were like Jewish patriots and one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot named Simon, to be a fellow disciple with Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was not a patriot, he was working for the enemy. You can see why the disciples argued a lot. (laughs) But be that as it may, Uh, Tax collectors, they would work for the Roman Empire and have to charge Jewish people to pay the Romans, and they would charge exorbitant rates and then pocket the difference. And yet, even though they would cheat people out of their money, notorious for doing this, charging exorbitant rates beyond what the Roman Empire demanded, and they would get rich off exploitation, Jesus never got mad at tax collectors. He didn't get mad at prostitutes. In fact, there was once a prostitute who was washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And Simon the Pharisee said in his heart, if Jesus knew what kind of shady lady that was, if he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And yet Jesus wasn't mad at prostitutes. He wasn't mad at tax collectors. He wasn't mad at the sinners. He wasn't mad at the financial fiscal cheaters. Jesus invariably and inevitably was angry at Pharisees. Now, again, when we think of Pharisees, we think like they're twirling their Third Reich mustache. But actually, Pharisees in the ancient world, in Mediterranean first century culture, were highly esteemed. Picture the best-selling evangelical holy authors of the day. Think of our most esteemed pastors who appear on the news or who have TV shows or whatever. That's probably not good because I'm a pastor and I have a TV show, so I have to watch out for this. But basically, I think it's super interesting that those were the people that Jesus was mad at. He was mad at the religious elite. Uh, One man, 
This young idealistic Jew, I love how Jesus was my age and he began his public ministry. This one young idealistic Jew pitted himself against the assembled might of Jewish orthodoxy. With heroism, Jesus wasn't afraid to speak truth to power. One man not only fought the entire system of Judaism, but everything he did was a deliberate act against religion. Everything Jesus did, let me say that again, was a deliberate act against religion. Now, the religion that the Jews celebrated, called Judaism, was practiced by Pharisees. Now, the scribes, they would write down the Talmud and explicate the law of Moses. But it was the Pharisees who actually put wheels on it, who put legs to it, who put feet to the scribal writings. And they were the ones who carried out the ceremonial and religious observances as commentated and penned by the scribes. So that's what the Pharisees did. They were the crame de la crame. There were never more than 6,000 Pharisees at any given time. They were like what the Navy SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, MI5, DEFCON 1, Recon, Paratroopers, what they are to the military, that's what the Pharisees were to religion. They were the most holy religious zealots esteemed by everybody. And yet, what does Jesus do? Let me just tell you some of the things he said to Pharisees. First of all, in our text, he says effectively and essentially, you're an abomination in the sight of God. (laughs) So here's all these religious leaders who are effectively worshipped by the common folk. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you look clean to men, but what's highly esteemed among people is often an abomination to God. And I love this. He actually says in our text, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. In other words, religion, which is what you're about, is all about impressing people, but relationship, which is what I'm about, is God impacting people. You're all about legalism, but the father is all about love. Now watch this. Jesus said in another occasion to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed dooms filled with dead men's bones. (laughs) Shots fired. Hashtag low key insult. If you go to pastors and you say, hey guys, you are whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. You're not probably going to get asked to speak back at their synagogue. If you're picking up what I'm throwing down, catching what I'm pitching and mowing what I'm growing. Because back in that culture, the Pharisees believed that if you were near a grave, if you touched a tomb, you became unclean for seven days. But Jesus said, not only are you unclean, you are the tombs themselves making everyone else unclean. Then Jesus went on to say, this is one of my favorite things Jesus ever said, because it just shows what a boss he was. Jesus literally said to the Pharisees, you go across land and sea to make converts. But in proselytizing the nations, he said, you make your converts twice as much sons of hell as yourself. Because your father is the devil. (laughs) I don't know if you realize how extreme that is. 
But Jesus had a lot of chutzpah. Then, I love this one. Jesus says, you guys are like filthy cups. (laughs) You look clean on the outside, but you're disgusting in the inside. In other words, you look good before men, but God knows the abomination in your heart. Then, I love this. The Pharisees, they were passionate about fulfilling the law of Moses, which was to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they debated, the religious leaders actually debated among themselves, ancient blogging, what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. In fact, again, I have a friend from Israel who, who, who actually told me that some Jewish people, Orthodox Hebrews to this day, uh, they have to like prepare their toilet paper before the Sabbath comes because they don't even want to unroll toilet paper unless that's considered work. Like you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So it's very extreme. And it got so extreme in Jesus's day that when Moses said in the book of Exodus, he said, you are not to lift a burden on the Sabbath. The religious people actually debated what that meant. If you're not allowed to lift a burden on the Sabbath, they reasoned, are you allowed to wear a wig on the Sabbath? This is something the religious leaders actually debated in the ancient world. Are you allowed to wear a wig on the Sabbath? Because technically that's carrying a burden on your head. If you're not allowed to lift a burden, are you allowed to wear your dentures? They debated. Because technically false teeth is a burden you're carrying with your mouth. Are you allowed to wear a false limb on the Sabbath? Because technically a false limb is a burden you're carrying on your leg. And then they, this is true, they actually debated in the ancient world, the religious leaders, are you allowed to lift your child on the Sabbath? Because technically lifting a child, that's lifting a burden. You parents are like, amen, brother, my child is a burden. (laughs) They were so extreme about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day that they actually made a law that as a doctor, you were not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. Now, if the disease was life-threatening, you were allowed to heal. But if it was non-life-threatening, it was against the law to heal on the Sabbath. So what does the rebel Jesus do? The optimist fit. What does he do? Seven times. Count them. Seven times in four gospels, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And what's more, he often did it apparently in synagogues. There's one story of him walking into a synagogue, which was like the Jewish church of that day. And in front of the religious leaders, he told a man with a withered hand to stretch out his hand and healed him. Totally non-life-threatening disease. He could have done it in private. He could have waited a day, but he didn't. He did it on the Sabbath in a synagogue in front of the religious leaders just to tick him off because he really cared about healing a guy. Then, I love this The religious leader said, you are not allowed to harvest grain on the Sabbath because technically that's doing the work of a farmer. So what does Jesus do? He takes his disciples through grain fields and the Bible says that he began rubbing grain in his hands under the noses of the Pharisees. And then it says the Pharisees plotted how they could kill him because he was harvesting grain on the Sabbath. So he and his disciples were like plucking grain and eating it, like just bosses, they didn't even care. They're like rubbing grain in their hands. The Pharisees are watching this, Jesus knows this. And I always wondered as a kid, when I read that story, 
why did it say that the Pharisees plotted to kill him just for harvesting grain? Why, why, why did that tick them off so much that they planned to execute him? What's interesting is when Jesus was harvesting grain with his disciples on the Sabbath, according to the scripture, it wasn't just because he was really hungry. Oh, and Jesus did like to eat a lot. <laughs> People accused him of being a glutton. But my defense of Jesus is, if we weren't meant to have midnight snacks, why is there a light in the fridge? Can I get an amen? <laughs> Exercise, I thought you said extra fries. The body is a temple, but sometimes we add additions. <laughs> anyway, Jesus loved to eat. I'm in good shape. That shape is round. He loved to feast. And so he's, he's not just harvesting grain on the Sabbath because he's super hungry. He was doing it in front of the religious leaders to break their rules. What people don't understand, and I've been studying the life of Jesus since I was in my mother's womb because my dad's like a Bible scholar, so he was just always dr- drilling us with scriptures ever since we were like basically fetuses. But be that as it may, the more I study the life of Jesus, the more I, I get so passionate about people seeing what a rebel Jesus was. In his day, he was doing illegal things according to the religious laws of his time. Uh, Let me just share with you another example. He told the Pharisees, the religious leaders, "You, you swallow a camel, yet you strain at a gnat. You're so concerned with fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law. But in doing so, you're lovers of money. Your hearts are filled with avarice and greed as our first verse tells us. He got so mad at the religious leaders that the one time you see Jesus really ticked was when he went to the Temple Mount. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Temple Mount, but you know how currently the Dome of the Rock is there? The temple was three times taller than the Dome of the Rock. So if you're a Jew, that would be the biggest building. That'd be the biggest skyscraper you ever saw. In fact, you would come out from underground and you would walk up these stairs and then suddenly you'd see this looming building and that was the temple. It was so impressive that the disciples who were probably mostly teenagers, eight of the 12 disciples were apparently fishermen. So they were like blue collar teenagers. When they saw the temple, it says that they marveled at how big it was. And I love Jesus, just like a total wet blanket in the moment. He's like, yeah, not one stone will be left upon the other. So be impressed because it's all going to be destroyed. (laughs) I love that Jesus did that. Just totally undid their American dream materialism. Yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. But be that as it may, Jesus, he went to the temple. The temple, this is what a lot of people don't understand, was huge. It was massive. If you go to the courts of the temple... It wasn't just a little hallway. It was massive. So when it says that Jesus went to the temple, he did this twice, by the way, to cleanse it. And he was turning over tables and fashioning a bullwhip. When he was, the Bible says, driving out the money changers. I used to think of Jesus like pacing back and forth, just ticked. Like pacing back and forth, just steaming. That's not what was happening. Evidently, what was going on is Jesus was long distance running through this massive temple, clearing out the courts. So we're talking about long distance running, Indiana Jones bullwhip, so ticked that the priests had become merchants and were ripping off the commoners that he drove the religious leaders out of their own temple. Then, watch this. 
The reason he was so angry is because the Bible says that they were selling doves as money changers. It was currency exchange. History tells us that the religious leaders were selling doves for 15 times the price you could buy them for in the marketplace. So if you went to the marketplace, you could get doves, but in the temple, they charged 15 times those prices, as much as 15 times the price you could buy doves for in the marketplace at exorbitant rates. And they said, these doves are holy. So if you pay us X amount of money, we'll give you holy doves or a prayer blanket or this little shawl will heal you or whatever. This could still happen in religion today. But these are holy doves. And if you pay us 15 times the amount you can get them for in the marketplace, then you'll give a holy sacrifice to God. The problem with this was, is the book of Leviticus tells us that a dove is a poor man's sacrifice. That's why we believe that Jesus was poor. Not only because he said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, but because Mary and Joseph, when they offered sacrifices at Jesus's birth, the Bible says they offered doves. That meant that Jesus grew up evidently as a poor kid in poor socioeconomic environments. So Jesus, who evidently grew up poor, when he sees that they're selling the poor man's sacrifice for 15 times the price you get them for at the marketplace, exorbitant rates, don't you think his empathy meter would have skyrocketed? Don't you think that would have plucked at his heartstrings? Perhaps etched like psychic acid on his brain, he remembered his own poverty growing up and he got so ticked that they were ripping off the poor to make a pretty penny that he began to drive them out. He wasn't mad at the quote-unquote sinners. He was mad at the religious people. So then I love when Jesus is in Luke 15 telling the story of the sheep who leaves the 99 to go after the one because he's the one who never leaves the one behind. Jesus, when he tells the story of the shepherd who goes after the sheep, you guys know it. Listen to this. He was telling that story to Pharisees. He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now, first of all, nobody in that day would have a hundred sheep. Nobody, no shepherd, nomadic shepherd in the ancient Mediterranean culture would own a hundred sheep. Historically, that wouldn't happen. What's more, as we talked about a few months ago, shepherds were outcasts. If you had gone against the taboo in the village and had not performed this ceremonial hand washings that the Pharisees esteemed, you were considered unclean. The Pharisees considered shepherds to be unclean. So when Jesus said, suppose one of you speaking to Pharisees owned a hundred sheep, that was like saying, it's literally like this. It's like saying to modern day pastors at a pastor's conference, Suppose one of you pastors owned a brothel with a hundred prostitutes and one of those prostitutes got lost. So the shepherd, so that, so the owner went after the one prostitute and brought it back to the 99. That's what it would have sounded like to them. Shepherds were hated. 
You can see this all through history. Like, they were unclean. They didn't perform the ceremony hand washings. They were lawbreakers. They were outlaws. They'd gone against the taboo of the village. They were totally hated. So the fact that Jesus said, suppose one of you owns a hundred sheep was a low-key insult. Then I love this. The rabbi, the rabbis in the ancient world actually said that if a man, a rabbinic teacher, prolonged a conversation with a woman in the streets, he would in the end inherit Gehenna. That was a rabbinic saying. The rabbis taught that if you were a man, a Jewish rabbi, and you had a long conversation with a woman in the streets publicly, you would go to hell. That's what they said. You would go to Gehenna. So Jesus, (laughs) what does the rebel Jesus do? In John 4, the longest conversation he ever had publicly was with a woman. And the Bible says the disciples were amazed that Jesus spoke to a woman. It doesn't say they were amazed he walked on water. It doesn't say they were amazed that he fed 5,000 people with a kid's lunchable. It doesn't say they were amazed that he rose from the dead. It says they were amazed that he spoke to a woman. What's more, it was a Samaritan woman. To some strict Orthodox Jews, Samaritan women were considered to have less value than a man's donkey. And yet Jesus' longest public conversation was with a Samaritan woman. So that's when the disciples were amazed. Like, whoa, he's talking to a woman publicly in the streets. The rabbis say he's going to inherit Gehenna. Why was Jesus doing that? First of all, to liberate women to emancipate women, to lift up women. As Jesus said in one passage, woman, be loosed. But secondly, to show them that the rabbis, he actually said this, had replaced the laws of God with the traditions of men. Jesus did not get in trouble for hanging out with women, for hanging out with tax collectors, for hanging out with sinners, for hanging out with prostitutes. He specifically got in trouble by the religious elite for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Back then, if you ate with somebody, it was considered a political act of solidarity. Today, sometimes when we eat, we eat by ourselves. So, you know, you might go through the Taco Bell drive-thru, you get your food, you take it up to your room, and you play Xbox, and your family's downstairs. That's not how it worked back then. Back then, when you ate, you always ate with other people. So when David said in Psalm 23, thou hast prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies, he was saying, I'm not going to be alone forever. You're going to surround me with comrades and we are going to share communion. That's why it's called communion. We're going to be in community with each other, not solitude, but solidarity, not isolation, but infiltration. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We were meant to not give up, but squat up. So David says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That was an act of solidarity in the same way. When Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, he was standing in solidarity with them. He was saying, actually, these guys are in and the Pharisees are out. It's tipsy-turvy. I don't know if I said that phrase right. (laughs) It's the other way around. The kingdom is flipped right side up. Because the same matter that goes into my body when I eat from this loaf is the same matter that goes into your body as you share from this same loaf 
So the two Hebrew, the Hebrew word is the two become ekod, the two become one. So to eat with somebody, you were becoming one with them. And so when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees got so angry at him because he was standing in solidarity with them. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, as the Pharisees are deriding him in our text, he says, what people esteem before men, impressive religion, is an abomination to God. He's after an impacting relationship. You guys, you look clean on the outside, but I know what's in your heart. It's avarice and greed and filthy lucre. Now, Jesus says, don't think I've come to destroy the law. No, not a jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Sooner would heaven and earth pass away than such a circumstance would be occasioned. But he does say this. He says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders in our text, he tells them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows what's in your heart. The reason this strikes such a chord with me is because I used to be such a Pharisee. And I used to pray in front of other people in a way that would sound really holy. How can I sound holy when I pray before God and men? How can I appear very religious? And then I started really reading the stories of Jesus and I'm like, Jesus did not get along with the Pharisees. He loved on them, but he didn't cater to them. And as we said earlier, a recovering legalist, I cannot tell you the deeps of zeal and passion that I feel when it comes to this having an impact on our lives today. You say, okay, Ben, great. Jesus trolled the Pharisees all the time. What does that have to do with me today? Here's what this has to do with you today. So often in Christianity, we fall into religion just like the Pharisees. Maybe if I go to church this many times a year, maybe if I pray this many times per day, maybe if I lift my hands in a certain way when I praise, maybe if I follow the rules, then I'll be holy. And so often we fall into religion and the manifestation of the sameness and tameness of churchianity exhibits itself in so many young people today thinking that Christianity is simply this. The good news is simply this. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. It's like, okay, that's fine advice, but like, is that what, is that what Jesus' message was? Because I'm pretty sure that wasn't his message. I mean, that, that's fine advice, but that wasn't Jesus' message. Jesus, he would actually make fun of Pharisees. Like he'd say, you guys have your face all long and drawn and you're like, I've fasted for days. He said, wash your face. He said, you guys blow your trumpets when you're about to give of the tithe. But he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Tithe in secret. You guys pray publicly to sound holy before men. Jesus said, go in your prayer closet. And then I love how he ends our text. He actually says in our text, he talks about marriage and adultery. Now, I don't know, as, you're spe- as he's speaking to Pharisees, I don't know if you've been hurt 
ever by somebody who's been unfaithful to you, but it is the worst feeling in the world. If you've been through it, you know how horrible it is to get your heart broken by somebody who went out on you with somebody else, to somebody who was disloyal or unfaithful to you. Jesus here, he he talks about marriage and adultery at the end of our text. He talks about the dangers of infidelity and not being faithful or loyal. It's the worst feeling in the world when you get cheated on. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. But what Jesus is preaching here is not, hey guys, be an antinomian and just run wild and go cheat on everybody and do whatever you want. No, the message of Jesus does not result in being an antinomian and just being, you know, wild and throwing your life away in evil. The opposite is true. When you understand that Jesus's message was one of grace, you are actually going to follow him all the more passionately. The law says, build a boat and collect sticks. Grace is about making you long for the open seas so you can't help but build a better boat. Let me give you an example. When I was a teenager, sometimes my dad would tell me to wash the family car and I'd like spray it off really quick, vacuum it for 30 seconds, check it off the list and call it a day. It was the law. But when a girl texted me and said, hey, Ben, can you pick me up for a date tonight? Then what do I do? Suddenly I bring out the turtle wax and extra polish finish. And I take one of those little tree things you hang from the mirror and I put it on the rear view mirror. Suddenly I take the vacuum out again and I make sure every nook and cranny is perfectly clean. And I take the cologne and I spray it and it's the cleanest car you've ever seen. Why? Because the chore is law but the date is love. And just as I clean up the car a whole lot better if I'm motivated by love rather than compelled by law, the same is true in life. You actually clean up your life a whole lot more by accident when you're not trying to fulfill the law, but when you're motivated by love. That is the entire book of Romans and the entire book of Galatians. It's you are not under law, you are under grace. You think, well, this is going to make me do all kinds of evil things. It's the opposite. It's actually going to make you fur- go, go further in godliness because the law cannot take you as further as, as far as love can. And that's why Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. He said, I have come to fulfill the law. That was ancient Jewish rhetoric that the rabbis used. Like if a rabbi butchered a text and totally misinterpreted it, you would say Rabbi Ben Hillel or Rabbi Ben Soma or Rabbi Akiva has abolished the law. But if a rabbi gave a brilliant Bible teaching and an amazing interpretation of a text, you would say that rabbi has fulfilled the law. So when Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law, he was saying, I have come to bring out the true interpretation of the law. So he would say things like, you have heard Moses say, but I say to you. And he brought out the true interpretation of the law, which was what? He said, all 613 precepts found in the Jewish Torah, all the commandments in the law hang on the one commandment to love God and to love people. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets is summed up in love. So my heart for you is that you would realize you are not under law, you are compelled by love. That's why the veil in the temple was torn when Jesus died on the cross from top to bottom. It was as if if God the Father was tearing the veil that separated his heart from the common people, just as ancient Jews would tear their garments in grief if they were rending their hearts. You'll see it happen in the Bible sometimes. Jews would be so sad 
over a travesty that they would rip their garments in two as a sign that they were tearing their hearts in half. So too, the father tore the veil, separating his heart from the common folk when Jesus died on the cross, not so that we could get into the presence, but so that the presence of God could get into us, not so that we could go into the temple, but so that we would become the temple for the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, now that Jesus did not say, it's almost finished, but he said, it is complete. Tetelestai. It's done. Because Jesus said, it is finished, I now know I am perfectly loved. So the Bible says, I am currently holy, blameless, and without reproach. People tell me, ask me, Ben, what can I do to be more holy, blameless, and without reproach? I say, nothing! So you say, well, Ben, what's like the application for your Bible study today? You talked about how Jesus was a rebel. He was not about religion. He was about relationship, not about impressing people, but being impacted by God. What does that do for me today? And what's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. Here's what I want you to do. Because Jesus said it is finished, because you are under grace, not under law. The one takeaway I have for you is this. Yay, God. (laughs) Sweet. I'm loved. Let yourself get loved on by God. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to walk with him so much more passionately. And you're going to clean up your life without even trying because love will always take you further than the law. It's interesting how Jesus closes our text, and I end with this, talking about Pharisees, marriage, and adultery. Because in John 8, we're told that the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who was caught having an affair. And yet the law of Moses tells us that in order to indict a person taken in adultery, you had to catch both parties in the act. So both the man and the woman would stand before the proverbial kangaroo court of law and they would be incriminated. They would be found culpable or guilty, but you needed both parties. The Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus and they said, should she be stoned? And Jesus was pinned on the horns of a dilemma. If she said yes, pardon me, if he said yes, she should be stoned. He was disobeying his own commandment to love. If he said she shouldn't be stoned, he was quote unquote disobeying the law of Moses, they thought. So Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, you cast the first stone. What's interesting about that is they all walked away. Brilliant is that the Pharisees brought the woman, but not the man. To incriminate the woman, they needed the man as well. Some scholars speculate that's because one of the Pharisees was having an affair with the woman. That's why the man was conspicuously absent. The Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but inwardly their hearts were full of adultery. They looked impressive to men, but our text tells us they had greed and the love of money in their hearts. My heart is, is that we, my friends, would not become accidental Pharisees. That we would not say, Father, thank you that I'm not like tax collectors and sinners. Remember that Pharisee who prayed that? Thank you that I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I have to the tithe. It's like the worst Thanksgiving prayer ever. You know, at Thanksgiving, it's like, what are you thankful for? Friends. What are you thankful for? Turkey. What are you thankful for? Living in Ohio. What are you thankful for? Me. I'm awesome. (laughs) That was the Pharisee. Father, thank you that I'm so amazing. Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes away justified, not the Pharisee. 
So my heart for you is that you would understand you are holy, blameless, and without reproach, that you would say, yay, God, because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords who put death to death so we don't have to be scared to death of death. At the place of the skull, he crushed the skull of the serpent with the crown of thorns on his skull. So we go our way, knowing that he said, telestai, it is finished, saying, yay, God, we are holy, blameless, and without reproach. We don't have to impress people. We are impacted by God. We don't have to go after religion we have a relationship. We don't go through life saying, how can I look clean to men, but know instead that I am loved by God. I am holy, blameless, without reproach. The veil is torn. I come boldly into the presence and the presence is inside of me. So there's nothing left for me to do, but to say, yay, God, can I get an amen? (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. You're so good. You love us so completely, so fully, so much. And we just want to say, Yay, God. Yay, God. Yay, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ben, thank you for sharing that with us. I will say amen to that. Hey, I want to let you know, if you would like to talk to Ben, if you have not had a chance to just get to know him a little bit, he will be at a table in the rear of the atrium, um, and he does have pre-orders for his book for sale. Uh, So there's actually a bookmark that if you buy that bookmark, you've bought that book. Um, and all of the proceeds from that go to the Hope Generation. So if you'd like to just talk to him, encourage him, or find out more about that, he will be back there. I also wanted to, to let you know, in the uh, program that you received today, uh, there's a little bit of information about authentic manhood. So this is part two. It runs again on Sunday evenings, starting next week, and Monday mornings. You can choose either of those. Come to the ones that you can make it. If you were there for part one, this will build on that. If you are not there for part one, don't worry because this can also stand alone. So there's a lot more details in there, but you can check that out. You can sign up on our website, uh, dig into some ways to become a better husband, better father, better man. Thank you for being here this week, and we'll see you back next week for more in the book of Luke. Thanks for coming.